Hey, welcome to the sermon series from Life Church Green Bay. It's our mission to bring the life-giving message of Jesus to the 920 and beyond. We're so glad you're here. If this is your first time joining us, we want to do life with you. While you're listening, fill out our hello card on our website so we can connect with you. Visit lifechurchgreenbay.com forward slash hello to fill it out. Make sure to check the I'm new here and online options while filling out the card. Again, we're so glad you're with us today. Here's this week's message. All right, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, if you don't have a traditional Bible but you'd like one and you're comfortable, just raise your hand. One of our friends will bring you one that you can either borrow or you can keep. It's our gift to you. We'll also have you look up the YouVersion app or it's called the Bible app and all the notes and scriptures have been uploaded on there. And we'll put the, the scriptures and all the stuff on the screens right behind me as well. If you're watching us online or you're at one of our other gatherings, love you guys and so glad that you are a part of our community. Listen, somebody in here was here last week and they listened to Pastor Dean when he talked about praise and some people got their praise on today. And so give yourselves a hand for pressing in and uh, sometimes the best breakthrough that, that you're going to get is just to, just to open up your spirit and to open up your mind and let God do what it is uh, that he wants to do. One of the things I love about scripture is the nuance of it. It's complex. It's, uh, it's complicated. I mean, there's all sorts of beautiful stuff underneath the surface of it. It's, it's a three-dimensional sort of book. I was watching a show on the Discovery Channel a few months ago, and it was talking about the city of Istanbul. And I, I, I've always wanted to go to Turkey. It's kind of the hotbed of so many things that happen in Scripture. And Istanbul, of course, played such a, a huge role. It was the capital city of three different ancient empires. And during this documentary, they were exploring the beauties and the nuances of Istanbul and an archeologist was digging and, and, and as he dug to a certain depth that opened up a cavern and inside that cavern was all sorts of stuff that they didn't know had existed. There was like an entire culture. There was an entire community inside of this cavern. And, and as they were exploring all sorts of different things and learning all sorts of new things, they began to dig in even further. And as they, as they dug underneath that first cavern, they discovered another cavern. And underneath that first cavern, there was a whole nother culture. There was a whole nother community, a whole set of different buildings and all sorts of different objects that they found. And, and so they, they dug even further and, and they got to a third level and, and it opened up to a, a whole nother cavern. And what had happened is, is when the city was taken over and when it was conquered and made a part uh, of the new empire, they would literally just trash the city. They would push dirt on top of it and they would build on top rather than retrofit buildings. It's kind of like going to a subdivision where rather than building uh, on on old buildings, which is something that Pastor Sonny and I love to do, they all just they would just build new things. They would put dirt on top of old things and build new things. And so when they got to the third layer, they found this whole subset, this whole culture. And the main thing that they found underneath there was a 50,000 seat hippodrome. I got a picture of it. I mean, it's a, it's a drawing, but look at this. This is called uh, Constantinople's Hippodrome. And inside that Hippodrome was between 50 and 100,000 seats where people would congregate and they would come and watch horse races. They, they would watch gladiators battle. And, and the entire community was built around this thing that they found covered 
underneath different layers of dirt. And the further they dig, the more interesting Istanbul gets. And they actually do tours in Istanbul now of what they call the undercity. The Sermon on the Mount is like that. The more you dig, the more interesting it gets. It's nuanced, it's complex, it's complicated, but it's really practical. It, it, it was beautiful, and yet it was startling. When you, when you really understand the context into which it was delivered, it was really, really confrontational. It, it required finely tuned ears then and acutely focused eyes now. It took an open heart to truly hear it then and an open mind to truly see it now. I mean, after Jesus tells his listeners to be salt and light, he says some things in verses 17 through 20 that would have hit them like a sledgehammer. And, and he's really dealing with two groups of people, seekers and settlers. Listen to this. He says, don't misunderstand why I've come. Like, I didn't come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose has been achieved. So if you ignore the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same, you're going to be called the least in the kingdom of God. But anyone who obeys God's law and teaches them, they'll be called great in the kingdom of God. But I warn you, watch this. Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And with those words, Jesus was about to challenge their understanding of everything they thought they knew about the entire religious system. He, he was literally about to push people to their limits. Let's talk about that today in a message we're calling, It's Not What You Think. Let's pray. God, we love you and we're grateful to you. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your spirit that was waiting on us to get here, for your spirit that was inside of us, God, that was filling the, the cracks and was filling the holes, that was filling the voids, and that, God, when we began to unleash all of ourselves unto you, your spirit began to well up within us and our hearts were changed, our minds were changed, our directions were changed. That Thank you that today, God, somebody's destiny was moved during a song today. Somebody's direction was moved during a prayer today. That God, I pray that in this moment, that your word would become flesh, your word would become life, that it would change us, make us, mold us, less like us and more like you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we live in a town that's built on religion, that's built on rules and regulations and rituals. Do this, but don't do that. Uh, but if you do this, do that. And, and if you do that, it'll undo the this that you just did. But does it? Do our four these or do our six that's undo our actions, or better yet, our intentions. Now, I'm not anti-religion, I'm not anti-rules, I'm not anti-regulations, I'm not even anti-ritual. I actually love the ritual of it. I think that the rituals are beautiful. I think that the rituals are respectful. I think that the rituals are honoring. But if we're honest, most of the rituals aren't for God. They're for us. Uh, they're to make us feel better about who we are and what we do. They're, 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 they're there to, to, to ease our conscience. And in some ways, the rituals excuse us. They, 
they enable us. They make us like spoiled kids who expect to get everything that they want whenever they want, however they want, because they have a sugar daddy of a God. The problem is we can't light enough candles or repeat enough prayers to make up for our actions, never mind our intentions, including a sinner's prayer. You know, that prayer that we pray at the end of a service so that people can enter into a relationship with Jesus. That prayer isn't a cure, it's a confession. Which is why the book of Romans says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it's with your heart that you believe and are justified and it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. There's a duality to it. It's not just a head matter, it, it's, also, it's also a heart matter. It's not, it's not the ritual or the recitation that creates the change, it is the repentance that the recitation represents. And so when Jesus said, I warn you, Unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of the law, that's the Sadducees, and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. And when he said that, y'all, he had everybody's attention. It, it would have shocked his listeners because the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were considered the ultimate example of righteousness. To those first century Jewish listeners, Jesus' statement would have suggested literally that no one will have the ability to enter heaven. And you know what? That's actually what he meant. He meant that in the flesh, no one, not, not anyone will have the ability to enter into the kingdom. I mean, to the seekers who were there, the average person trying their best to serve God while eking out a living, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they were the gold standard. They, they were the aspiration. They were the goal. They were the, they were the truly holy people. So for Jesus to declare that even they weren't good enough to get into heaven would have been so confusing to the seekers and to the settlers, the, the religious leaders who dedicated their entire lives to, per, to perfecting the fulfillment of the law of Moses. For Jesus to declare that no amount of law keeping was good enough would have been beyond concerning. But he was saying the problem isn't with your rules. The problem isn't with your regulations. The problem isn't even with your rituals. The problem isn't what you do and the problem isn't what you don't do. The problem is the human heart. It's not your actions, it's your intentions. And, and when Jesus implied that, he had everyone's attention. When Jesus said that, I picture it would have been like Scooby-Doo. That when Shaggy says something on Scooby-Doo, Scooby-Doo says, Arr! And Jesus would have said, it's not about your actions, it's about your intentions. And I think hundreds of people would have went, Arr! And once he had shaken them into acknowledging the broken system that they were living in, he went in on not only the brokenness of the delivery of the system, he went in on the perversion of it. They had, they had perverted the religious system and he, and, he, and he confronted the perversion of it with one little line. You've heard it said. And in, and in verses 21 through 48, Jesus uses a pattern. He, the, it, scripture is... Scripture is so nuanced that it's easy for us to miss it. Like sometimes, sometimes we're moving so fast. Do you ever move so fast through life that you miss stuff? Have you ever been with somebody and you're in the same car, going the same place, looking the same way, and somebody said, did you see that? You're like, nope. I didn't see anything. There's been times where I've saw something out the corner of my eye and I was so interested in it that I'll hit a left and I'll turn and come all the way around the block just so I could see 
That's something again. And scripture is like that. It's so easy to miss. There's, there's like little things that you get moving so fast or you read it in such little snippets that, that you miss it. But verse 21 through 48, it's a pattern. Like Jesus gives six examples that contrasted the righteousness of the religious system with the true surpassing righteousness of God's kingdom. And he uses examples like murder and adultery, divorce, oaths, revenge, love. And that list wasn't intended to be an exhaustive list. It was meant to be a, like a sample size, a sampling of basic human behavior. It was meant to create a pattern through which that we could filter all of our actions and all of our attitudes, all of our intentions. And listen, his delivery was not clandestine. His delivery was incredibly confrontational. And sometimes we like to paint Jesus like he's a hippie. But Jesus was bold and Jesus was uh, courageous and Jesus, Jesus confronted things that needed to be confronted, particularly when they were opposite to the things that God intended. Like, like Jesus said, I, I'm not here to abolish the law. Listen, Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus was from the time he was born, brought up in a Jewish system. Jesus was the most devout of the devout religious system Jewish people. He said, I'm not here to get rid of this system. I'm all in on the system. I'm here to fulfill it. I'm here, I'm here to fill in the gaps of the things that have gone missing from the time that it was given. The things that man has perverted, the things that man has changed, the things that man has adjusted to fit into their own framework. And we live in a culture that is adjusting scripture to fit to its needs and to its nuances and to, to its desires. And, and God is looking for people who will confront the things that need to be confronted. And my pastor used to say, you could say anything you you want as long as you say it in love. I, I don't want to be somebody who becomes uh, connected to things that Jesus would have confronted. And so his delivery wasn't clandestine. It wasn't hidden. It was incredibly confrontational. In those six times he said, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this, he was confronting a system that had taken the power from the seeker and put it in the hands of the settler. The, the settler, the religious leaders who had created a system that disempowered the common man and empowered the religious leaders who had perverted the system by convincing people they could not access God without them. Anybody who tries to tell you that you cannot access God without them is outside God's will and outside God's plan, not only for your life, but for the world that God created. God has given you a freedom to access him, to enter boldly into his presence, to enter into his throne room, to read scriptures on your own, to pray on your own, to seek him on your own. Like, listen, if you got to wait until Sunday to get an answer to your problems for me, you got a problem. You're never going to live through life. God has given you tools and resources and abilities through this book and through access to his presence and to the throne room that, that he is not a high priest that does not understand your suffering, but he is a high priest, as Pastor Sonny said, who sacrificed himself to break down the barrier between you and God's presence. And so Jesus is saying, bro, these guys, this is a power play. 
You don't need a person of position to tell you what it is that God has destined for you. He said, I know the plans I have for you. They are for good and not for bad. They are for a future and for a hope. And he's told you those same things. He's told them to you during your prayer times. He's told them to you during your devotional times. And Jesus confronted this system and and this system did this very thing by elevating their own tradition. They they actually elevated what they called the oral tradition to a place of equality with holy scriptures. Listen, there is nothing equal to scriptures. There is nothing that you can put alongside scripture that you say, well, I read the scriptures and I don't get the answers that I want, so I do this. I do this chant, or I do this mantra, or I do these hums, or I cross my legs in uncomfortable positions and put my hands in demonic positions that make me channel something that I shouldn't channel. He's already given us everything that we need. He said, we're, we're able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask. And so, so so Jesus confronts this, this oral tradition that, that was put in a place of equality with Holy Scriptures, which Jesus pointed out was in direct contradiction to the words of Moses, the very deliverer of that word, who said, you shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commands of the Lord your God, which I command you. He was saying, the only way you can actually rightly keep God's command is to not add to or subtract from his word, was to stop making this a head issue and to make it a matter of the heart. That it's not just about changing your actions. It's about changing your intentions. By taking laws that were written on stone and writing them on your heart. I mean, this wasn't even a new concept. Generations before Jesus even said that, the prophet Jeremiah said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. The covenant I'll make with that house, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. It was echoed by the prophet Ezekiel to whom God said, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I'll remove the heart of stone and I'll give you heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and obey my rules. It's interesting how many people will ignore things that they know they're not supposed to do. The, 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 the places that they know they're not supposed to go, the people that they know they're not supposed to be with, the substances that they know they're not supposed I wrote this message short so I could take a couple rabbit trails. Do you know how many people have started conversations with me with a smirk or with a sly little smile about the number of cities we have on the top 10 drunkest cities in America. I don't think that's funny. I don't think it's cute. I don't think it's anything to be excited about. I don't think it's stuff to post. I was in our apartment above the exchange yesterday, four o'clock in the afternoon, four people were outside of a bar, toe, toe, toe up, toe up. Four o'clock, Saturday afternoon, yelling. 
acting a fool, being crazy. Like they're standing outside, Pastor Sonny said, it's like they're standing outside waiting for somebody they went to high school with to drive by honk and recognize them. (laughs) I walked by with my little Yorkie. Thinking, as embarrassed as I am right now, As Joe Pesci would say, forget about it. Like you, what are you going to be like at 11? Like people, they know. You feel me? Y'all know. You, You know. You know why you know? You call it your conscience. The Bible calls it the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has said, you are able to do exceedingly and abundantly, above all, you can wish or ask for. Nobody wants to live their lives in bondage or in mediocrity, but because of the things that we allow and because of the things that we ignore, we do that. Why? Because we have a cop-out. We have a built-in, do this, do that, say this, say that, get yourself right on Sunday, and then Monday through Saturday, do whatever you want because Sunday's coming. But it is time for our culture and our generation to begin to live their lives like Jesus could come back at any time. What if on Tuesday you're getting chiefed out playing Call of Duty? Y'all know what getting chiefed out is, right? It's hitting that bud. What if on Tuesday afternoon you took a sick day and you're playing Call of Duty with some 13-year-olds? And you're getting chiefed out, and that eastern sky is split, and the trumpet sounds, and Jesus appears. You're not going to make it to Sunday. You better puff, puff, pass. Jesus was saying, your system. This is the, this is, the, I didn't make it up. Be mad at him. He said, your system is broken. No matter how much law-keeping you do, uh, uh, no amount of law-keeping is good enough because the problem is the human heart. And he went on to illustrate how bankrupt their understanding of the law was by making comparison after comparison after comparison, starting in verse 21 when he said, you've heard it said, that's the warning sign. You've heard it said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who's angry with this brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar, go be reconciled with your brother, then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Let your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you'll never get out until you've paid the last penny of your debt. He said, you've heard it said. (laughs) I love Jesus. Because he's a G. Jesus just, he he just doesn't play. And I love love how Jesus, he like like picks up momentum. And and he he said, you shall not murder. You've heard it said. And he he starts out easy. Like like he's giving him like a hall pass. He says, I mean, like, you've heard it said, you know, you shall not. I mean, that, that's from the commandments. It's not even from the, the 600 plus. It's from the 10. 
Like Jesus picks out one, he, he picks out like the most obvious one. Like, because when he, when he said that, they were probably all winners. They probably, they probably weren't murderers in the crowd on, on the mount. And, and so Jesus starts out easy, gives them a hall pass. He says, he says, I mean, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. And everybody was like, bingo. <laughs> winner, winner, chicken dinner. I ain't killed nobody today. Like, here we go. All right. But then he turns it. And I love this. I love how Jesus, as Pastor Dallas said, he flips the script. He said, he said, you've heard it said, don't kill nobody. But I tell you, anybody who gets angry with his brother, y'all are subject to judgment too. And with that, they probably all lost. They, they were all guilty at that point, and so are we, because everybody's been angry with somebody. This week, today, in the car ride here, some of y'all's kids' hair was messed up on the way here, and you tore your rotator cuff, reaching in the back seat, trying to beat a kid. You ever reach in the back seat, try to drive and beat a kid? You ever drove by somebody, and they are whooping their kid while they're dri driving with their knees. Don't you run away from me. Don't you try to get inside. None of y'all have ever done this, and I haven't done it either a lot, but like when you, you better get your face, get your face over here. Let me try. Don't you talk to me like that. And then they pull in the parking lot, and it and open the back door and look at the kids. You better get your stuff together too. Going in the truck. Don't make me look bad. You better go in there and act like you love Jesus. So the kid is in there like, got two black eyes. You got a ribeye steak from Quick Eye, Quick Trip on their eye. Some of y'all, you get people get angry all the time. But he said, anybody who gets angry with his brother, hmm, is liable to judgment. And, that's how I picture Jesus. Oh, oh yeah, and? And whoever says you fool, they're gonna be liable to the hell of fire. And the word that we translate into, into you fool is the Greek word raka. And, and raka means empty-headed. It means worthless. It means good for nothing. <laughs> you ever thought that? That low-down, dirty, sap-sucking, good-for-nothing you ever thought that, like at the job, that, that good for nothing? Jim, he always leaves everybody's work to be done for that low down good. At the store, this low down good for nothing. I've been waiting in line this whole time. You're going to try to walk up. In traffic, traffic's going to keep more people out of heaven than anything. I'm just saying, it's like, oh my God. Like, bro, I was at the border. They just dropped my son off at school in Canada. I was at the border trying to come back through to Detroit. I've been in, the, I've been in line for like an hour. Like, like it was lined up all the way across the bridge with semis and construction and, and everybody been waiting. And a guy in a little car, he like came, he came up the side and, and, and had the nerve to cut his blinker on. I said, the devil is a liar. You know how close, I got, 
I got right up on the person behind me. I said, I'm about to rear end somebody right now. Like I got so close up on somebody and I was in my car talking, you low down, good for nothing. We've been in line here for an hour. You think you're going to pull up with your little small little car. You shouldn't even be in that you too big for that car. You know, I'm cussing him out in my mind, but it, you know, I'm ready to get in a wreck and really put up some traffic. And one guy who had a truck, you knew he was bad because it was diesel. And he, he just, he said like this. He put his nose out into, like, you ain't getting around me. You're not. He put his nose. You ever see somebody put their nose out in the lane? That guy wasn't playing. And I was like, please, God, don't let him have a Dixie flag in the back of his truck and get out right now. We'll see somebody dead on the bridge. I'm never going to get old. Like, it's just like, have you ever just looked at somebody and said, you low down, dirty, good for nothing? Well, you're liable to the hell of fire. Listen, I just came to encourage you today. I just... Jesus was showing a pattern. He was showing a progression. Anger, insult, slander, bitterness. Anger, insult, slander, bitterness. Now, let me be clear on something. Anger in and of itself is not sinful. Traditional Christianity tends to teach that, but that attitude has caused generations of people to grow up emotionally undeveloped, unable to be honest in their hearts with God, with people or with themselves, which leads to some of the worst forms of hypocrisy. Like you ever been hit on the knuckles with a ruler in class? Listen, I've never been whacked in the knuckles by a happy nun. I'm just saying, they were angry, they seemed mad, and it was confusing, right? But in and of itself, anger isn't sinful. It's a valid human emotion. We all get angry. But Jesus says the anger has to be short-lived, which is why he said, come to terms quickly with your accuser. He was warning us. He was telling us that we have to be careful of the progression or it'll turn into harmful, sinful bitterness. It'll go from our heads to our heart. It'll go from our actions to our intentions. So we need to constantly present our hearts to God so he can examine us and show us what's acting and what's inaccurate in our perspectives. And I think he started with anger because anger can affect our relationships with others, with God, and with ourselves. Like, do you know how terrible I feel about myself? How, how ungodly feel, I, I feel when I act in anger? Do you know how hard I am on myself? Because anger affects my relationships even with myself. So for this very reason, Jesus urged that all offenses be corrected quickly and person to person whenever possible. Because the longer a person waits to correct an offense, the weightier the consequences become. You know, anger is actually a secondary emotion. It's not a principal emotion. It's, a, it's an offshoot of something else. It's a symptom. Like, like I had to realize, I didn't have an anger problem. I had a stuffing problem. I had a vulnerability problem. It just manifested itself as anger, which created a pattern, which created a progression. Anger, insult, slander, bitterness. So recognizing that, Jesus comes along and he says, it's not what you think, y'all. You've heard it said, don't commit murder. But I say to you, you cannot commit murder all you want. But this is deeper than that. There's a duality to it. It's not just a head matter. It's also a heart matter. It's not just your actions. It's your intentions. It's not the ritual or the recitation that creates the change. It's the repentance that the recitation represents. 
The problem lies within the human heart that is innately evil, that was innately born in sin and shaped in iniquity, that can only be softened, that can only be adjusted, that can only be changed through one thing. And that is that God changes, not our actions, but our intentions. And so we live our lives in this massive cycle of regret, trying to fix the things that we do. But you don't have the ability to fix the things that you do. Only God has the ability to fix the things that you are. And if you let God fix the things that you are, it will impact the things that you do. And so I wonder, what's in your heart today? What are you stuffing? What are you refusing to be vulnerable about? What process, what progression has been started that's affecting your relationships with others, with God, and ultimately with yourself? Wouldn't you like to leave that here today? I hope so. Because this whole thing, this whole religious system, it's not what you think. You can't follow enough rules and regulations. You can't perform enough rituals to gain your way to heaven. But if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You close your eyes all across this place. The first way that you need to be saved is from your sin and from your shame. See, this, this dynamic of salvation, it's, it's become so, it's become so passed through in our culture. It's uh, raise a hand, pray a prayer, fix the thing. But at some point, like when I was in my 20s, I, I recognized and I realized that I was broken. That everything that I was trying to do was, it was damaged. That, that the offshoot of who I was was affecting what I did. And when I met a guy who wasn't perfect, guys. Listen, the guy who led me to Jesus, he, he was a cigarette smoking, cigar smoking, beer drinking, sometimes cussing, rode a motorcycle, had a leather jacket. Just like it was like a guy who was kind of like me, but was fixing the things that he was doing because he was fixing the person that he was. And when I saw the example of that, it, it prompted me to not want to stop what I was doing, but to fix who I was. And the entry point to that, the ticket to be punched for your admission, it was for me to pray a prayer. It was for me to acknowledge, I've got sin in my life that I don't want anymore. And so this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to do that. Maybe you're here and you've, you've got sin in your life and you haven't made that crossover from from trying to fix what you do to trying to fix who you are. Jesus is here. He's here to fix that, fix both. So we do that by confession and profession. Confessing that we are broken. We can't fix ourselves, but professing that we know that Jesus can fix that. So if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you'd like one before you leave, I'm gonna ask you to do two things here in just a minute. First. So in just a moment with, with every head bowed and every eye closed and nobody looking around, I'm going to ask for people to do two things. First is to raise your hand and make eye contact with me. Once you've done that, 
you can put your hand down. That's your act of confession. Secondly, uh, I'm going to pray a few lines in a prayer that I'm going to pause. And when I pause, I'm going to ask you to repeat what it is that I just prayed. And if you declare it with your mouth and believe it in your heart, you will be saved. So if you're here today and you say, Sean, I don't have a relationship with Jesus, but I want to before I leave it, nobody look around. Did you raise your hand and make eye contact with me right now? Thanks. 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 Okay, I'm going to ask everybody in here to say these words. Say, Jesus, I've got sin in my life. I don't want it. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Make me different. Make me new. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen. Secondly, I wonder if you're here and you say, Sean, I don't need, I don't need salvation from sin. But I need salvation from myself. You've been living your life in some sort of a system that's been trying to fix what you do rather than fixing what you are. And you've been frustrated by that. You've been falling into the same patterns. You've had the same progressions. And if you're here today and you say, Sean, I want to stop that pattern. I want to stop that progression. And I want God to save me from myself. With nobody looking around, if that's you, just pop your hand up. Yes, yes, Jesus. So Jesus, today for my friends in this place, thank you for their vulnerability. God, thank you for their admission, their profession. I pray right now that you'd give them wisdom. I pray right now that you'd give them strength, that you'd give them perseverance. Guard their hearts and minds in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Still thinking about the message? Go follow our message recap podcast, Chew on That. The Chew on That podcast is a podcast where Life Church staff chew over the latest messages to dig deeper into our faith. Tap the link in the episode description to have a listen. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode. We'll see you next week.